Good morning. Thanks, John. Hi, I'm Devin. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. Thank you to all of you for showing up at church today. Thanks also to, and maybe especially to those of you who don't normally worship here but may just be traveling, visiting family. We're really, really happy to see you this morning. Um, a couple more quick announcements because uh, in the ancient church, Advent was the season of announcements where they would just take all the worship service and give it over to listing the things from the bulletin. Some of you are laughing and some of you are wondering if that's true. Uh, two quick announcements. First off, a huge thank you to all of you who have been a part of this church for the last month and have heard us coming back to the theme of volunteering week after week after week. Uh, at the end of the month, more than 40 of you stepped up to become a part of ministries where you weren't previously volunteering. Yeah. Across the whole range of ministries, from kids to youth to connections, thank you to all of you who showed up and, uh, and are making a commitment to be an active part of your local church. You should all give yourselves a big pat on the back. But uh, now that I've said thank you, I also am coming with another request. Those of you who have been at the congregational meeting uh, and who have been a member of this church for some time will know that toward the end of the year in our fourth quarter, we often ask that you prayerfully consider what you can give as a special gift to help build up your local church. Uh, what you can see on the slide up behind me is uh, the specific amount we're asking for. We're hoping over the course of Advent and into Christmas to raise a little over $40,000. And these are all of the many ministries that we want to allocate some extra funds to just to magnify the potential of their ministry. So as you go throughout the month, as you hop onto High, Point, uh, High Point's website to give your tithes, your offerings, look for the specific uh, option to give a year-end gift and prayerfully consider what God would have you do. All right, uh, and one final announcement. We had planned to do AMA today, but we're, we're running a little bit long and I am planning on being long-winded. So <laughs> this week we're just gonna let it slide. We'll come back and do it again, but save your good questions. If they do pop in your mind and you're really curious, come talk to me, come email them to us, and I hope we can tackle them in a future podcast. Now let's pray and uh, invite the presence of God. Heavenly Father, thank you that where two or more are gathered, you are there in our midst. And thank you for the great mystery of your presence, that you say that you're everywhere, filling all places and all people, and that we, yet we still pray, come. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, and that both your presence and your coming are true at the same time. Lord, pastor your people today on the word of God. Fill them full. Give them a word in season. Build them up in the truth. Hide me behind your cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really encouraged to see so many of you here on a holiday weekend. Um, I've really enjoyed Thanksgiving this year. I have to say that it's a holiday that has become more important to me as I've gotten older. And one of the reasons for that is because I learned, I don't know, I guess it was a little bit more than a year ago that uh, I can trace my family back to one of the Mayflower families. That there was a guy named William White who got on the Mayflower with his wife and kids and made the journey over. And uh, we don't actually know a ton about him, don't know where he came from beforehand. R really, all I know about him is the name of his children and what he brought with him. And one of the things he brought with him was his Bible. Um, it's a Bible that we don't often hear about today. Like, the, 
We often think about the King James Bible as being the real important English language Bible of the time, but he brought uh, a, a separate Bible with him, it was sometimes called the Breaches Bible, because uh, when the translator was working on the book of Genesis and talked about the garment of leaves that Adam and Eve knit together for themselves, he translated and made for themselves breaches. So for the rest of time, that was how that Bible was referred to. But, you know, William White didn't survive the first winter, but his children did. And when I think about him and when I think about his family, I have some mixed emotions because you know, on the one hand, I, I mean, I'm kind of proud to be able to trace my family back that far in the history of the church. But on the other hand, um, when, you, when you look at his kids, some of them were real rabble-rousers. They were getting in trouble in the early colony. Um, nevertheless, I mean, complicated emotions. I'm still, I'm still kind of thankful and fascinated. It's, it's a holiday that's taken on new meaning for me in a way that it just it never felt that way when I was a kid. But you can tell an awful lot about a society, about a culture, about a nation, based solely on its calendar. If a thousand years from now, some archeologists dig up an American calendar labeled with all the holidays and all the names of the week and the 12 months and the weeks divided into seven days, and maybe they happen on a leap year calendar and that totally throws them for a loop, they'd still be able to tell an awful lot about who we are, about what we value, about why we value it. I mean, because after all, what else is a calendar but a tool or a technology for making sense of our place in time and the way that we experience and order time and, and how it tells us how we want to relate to each other and when? And if, if you were to look across just even very recent history, never mind ancient history, you'd see that no two calendars are alike. If you were in ancient Rome, at the time when the first Christians were starting to gather together, they had a five-day week. Until very recently, most Southeast Asian countries observed a 10-day week. I mean, the sun and the moon more or less give us years and months, right? But weeks, I mean, that, the number of days in a week is all over the place based on human history and the civilizations that have emerged on the face of the earth. There's something arbitrary, but it's very revealing. It takes a collective decision to say, no, this is how we're gonna divide our time. And it's that tendency, that human tendency to try to order, regulate, explain time that makes our calendar so revealing. If we had, were still a part of an agrarian society, we would think probably about our year mostly in terms of when we plant our crops and when we harvest our crops. I mean, today in America, we still have some vestiges of the, in our calendar of the time when we were predominantly American society. It's why our school year is divided into semesters in the way that it is. But we've lost touch with the land and now, in advanced, technologically advanced Western cultures, we tend to separate our time into work and play. Everybody's working for the weekend. And holidays are every bit as arbitrary and culture-specific as the number of days in a week. When I was in Australia, I learned that most major sporting events are national holidays. It's true. I mean, like over there, their equivalent of the Kentucky Derby is a holiday. It's a bank holiday. Nobody does anything. Their equivalent of the Super Bowl, national holiday. 
Even though they're not still members of the British Empire, they are very happy to take a four-day weekend and observe the Queen's birthday. <laughs> but of course, they don't observe Thanksgiving, so I had to get together with the American expats in Australia to celebrate Thanksgiving. And we don't often think about it this way anymore, especially those of us who have worshiped in evangelical churches for most of our life, but the church also has its own distinctive calendar. It's an ancient calendar, and it tells us you know, who we are as a people and what we value and why. And the purpose of this calendar is directing all Christians to remember great Christian truths and to live their lives accordingly, just like Israel's, their organized feast days, tabernacles and booths and Passover were all about remembering the work of God in the past, celebrating it, and moving forward in the present in memory of who God was and who Israel was as a people. So some of the seasons of the Christian liturgical calendar are familiar to us. Some of them, you know, we forget the names and we wouldn't be able to tell you what they were about even if we tried, but if I gave you names like Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, All of those names are tied to profound Christian truths that for centuries, for thousands of years, the church decided, no, we want to remember those on an annual basis. There's something so important about those words that we need to be reminded of them year in and year out because if we lose sight of them, we will lose sight of who we are as a people. In the same way that what would America be if it didn't observe Thanksgiving? It would be a different place. Now, in the Christian calendar, there are two seasons that are specially set aside as seasons of fasting, as seasons of introspection, as seasons of repentance. And you probably already know the first one, it's Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter. But you may not realize that the second season, sort of the sister season to Lent, is Advent. Lent is about repentance and the memory of death. Advent is about repentance and remembering God's unfulfilled promises to us. So if you really want just sort of a one-sentence definition of what Advent is and why we celebrate it year in and year out, it's because we need to remember God's unfulfilled promises so that we today, right now, will live faithfully and receive those promises one day. Christmas is about Christ coming, Emmanuel, God with us. Advent is about Christ's absence, his distance from us. That's why I love to sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We could just play that one on repeat for the rest of the month and I would be very happy. Now I wanna say that an unfulfilled promise, God's unfulfilled promises to us are not broken promises. Our lives are full of unfulfilled promises. An accepted offer on a house is a promise but nobody's taken possession yet. Getting engaged is a promise of an eventual wedding, but nobody is Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. A job offer is a promise of future employment and provision. And too many of us know from incredibly painful experiences how high our hopes get sometimes when we receive any one of those promises and how crushing and devastating it can be when something goes wrong. There are many ways on both sides of a promise when things can go wrong and the original promise falls short. And this is why Advent is a time for reflecting on the faithfulness of God who keeps every promise. All God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But it's also a time for us 
It's necessary for us to examine ourselves and hold up our end of the bargain in a promise because a promise isn't just one-sided and a promise is especially not one-sided when you're in a covenant relationship with God. Think about the book of Hebrews. This is one of the great themes of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter three and four, Israel has a promise. They have a fantastic promise coming up out of the land of Egypt, being taken into the land that God said he would give to Abraham and his descendants forever. But what happens? What happens to that first generation? They die in the wilderness. Is it because they didn't have a true promise from God? Is it because God was less than faithful? No. But something went wrong in the wilderness. So it was their children who received the promise that should have been for the parents. But at the same time, Hebrews also gives us a great example of someone who does receive his promise, and that's Abraham. And what sets Abraham apart from his descendants centuries later coming out of Egypt? Hebrews chapter six looks back at Genesis 15, which we heard right a few minutes ago, and it explains that Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. So what I want to focus on for the next few minutes is Abraham's promise. I want to think about how the promise of Abraham in Genesis prefigures the promises that we have from God in Matthew 24. I want to think about Abraham so that I'll imitate Abraham and receive God's promises like Abraham did and not die in the wilderness like his descendants. The first great promise to Abraham the one that occasions his like kind of cry of lament to God in Genesis 15 is I have no heir, I have no children. Who's gonna, like God's been blessing me all these years, but who's gonna inherit it all? A, you know, a slave who's been managing my house? Why not my children? Why aren't there any children? Now, those of us who are familiar with the rest of the story know that God kept the promise of descendants to Abraham. Here comes Isaac, the child of promise, and after Isaac, Jacob, and Israel, and all of the tribes, and all of the billions and billions of Abraham's children who have come since then, so that God has fulfilled the promise of like sending Abraham out to look at the stars and count them if he can. God's kept his promise to Abraham, but my word did he make Abraham wait. He made Abraham wait until he was 99. And when Paul thinks about the age of Abraham at the birth of Isaac, this is over in Romans 4 and 5 when he's thinking about Abraham, he says that God waited until Abraham and Sarah's physical bodies were dead. He doesn't mean that they were literally physically dead, but he means that their capacity to procreate, to produce children, dead, gone. Couldn't do it naturally. And sometimes this is the way God chooses to do things. He gives us a promise, and then he, in his divine power, will fulfill the promise in such a way that the only possible explanation for how and why the promise of God has been fulfilled is that it was God's divine power and not up to Abraham and Sarah or up to you and me. So our promise, it may not be descendants, but it's similar. We're promised to people we're promised that when Christ returns, all of his elect are gonna be gathered together before God. And literally every Christian who has ever lived 
and died is still waiting for God to keep this promise. Like Abraham, we are promised a family. This is why the church is a family, a true family. And that includes the dead in Christ. It includes all of us right now who, for one reason or another, are not at peace with other members of the body of Christ, who are still among God's elect. It includes, maybe especially, many of us in the church who never really had a people, who never really had a family, who right now, for one reason or another, find ourselves hurting and painfully alone. The great good news of God's election, of his choice of you, is that he looked at you, loved you, and decided he wanted to be with you and with all the rest of the people that he chooses forever, and that he himself would be the source of our unity, our common bond to each other. And even the very best human relationships that you and I can imagine right now on this side of Christ's return pale in comparison to the unity that we will have both with Christ and with each other when he returns to receive his kingdom. So, the the other part of the good news is that right now, if you are in Christ, we are members of the same body. And we can start to enjoy that kind of fellowship right now on this side of Jesus' return. We just have to remember that even at its best, it's only partial. But the good that we experience now should make us want to choose God and live faithfully more and more and more, day by day, year by year, so that one day we can experience the great fullness of God's promises. And I think this is fantastic news. This is, this is a message that I need to return to every Advent, but maybe especially this Advent, because there are so many of us, me included, and this Advent, we're going into the holiday season, and it's supposed to be a season of happiness and cheer and joy. I mean, that, that's what the marketing season around Christmas is built on, right? But for many of us, it's a season of sorrow. We're missing loved ones who have died, who are gone. We're gonna show up to the table at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, and there's gonna be a chair that used to be filled, but that isn't anymore. We're gonna eat old recipes that are attached to faces, and we're gonna smell smells that we associate with the people who have mattered to us all our lives, and they won't be there. You know, for me, this year, I'm mourning a very dear uncle uh, who loved me and supported me and believed in me and encouraged me when I was just despairing in graduate school and who was just so faithfully a part of my life all the way through. And, and a few months ago, just before I returned to Madison, he closed his eyes in bed at, at hospice and fell asleep, and he woke up in the presence of Jesus. I miss my uncle, and I know so many of us miss our loved ones now. But the promise to me and to all of us is that when Christ returns, all of his elect will be with the Lord. Think of the promise in 1 Thessalonians, which this one is, sometimes feels a little bit weird that Paul would single this out, but he says, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ rise first. And think of the incredible joy of being alive at the return of Christ and seeing the dead ones that you've been missing for months and years and decades rise before you to meet the Lord. Maybe you're not mourning the dead, but it is very likely that especially in this season where so many of our lives are just characterized by painful, hurtful division, even in the midst of Christian families, that you're mourning broken relationships right now. This last uh, week, I was at a conference in Texas, and 
Uh, I don't know how many of you ever go to conferences, but there's always a bunch of people talking about boring things, and there's the real work that gets done when you have impromptu conversations with the people who you love and who matter and who are part of your networks. And I saw one of my dear friends, who's one of my best friends for you know, the last 15 years, and sat down with him over breakfast. Uh, he and his wife are both pastors in another state, and right now, his wife's in-laws have basically ceased all communication with him and with his family because they disagree over a point of Christian doctrine. It's an important one. It's one that you and I would certainly fall onto one side or another on. But the bitterness and the acrimony and the hostility that this guy is now experiencing because like, these folks aren't even interested in their grandkids anymore because of theological disagreement. The promise of Advent the unfulfilled promise of Advent is that at the coming of Christ, my friend's family is knit back together in the Lord. Another promise. Abraham's promised a place. He's promised a land, a place for his people to be in forever. And eventually it happens. We know it happens. We've read the story. We've read Exodus. We've read Joshua. We see the people go in and take the land, and we see them fight to stay in it. We're also promised a place. In Matthew 24, it's the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And so far, this all sounds really, really good. But here's the thing about God's promises. Before the coming of the kingdom of heaven, before Abraham's heirs inherit the land of promise, God is upfront about the basic pattern that it takes to inherit those promises. It's a simple three-part pattern. There's the promise, there's a season of pain, and then there's the fulfillment. If you're Abraham's heirs, you have to endure 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 400 years, it's terrible, it's crushing. It's so bad that when it's finally time to leave Egypt and God calls Moses at the burning bush and sends him down to announce the deliverance of God to his people, he says, God sent me to carry you, know, to carry you up out of the land of Egypt to the land of promise. They don't believe him. They don't even believe that God would do it at that point. There's something about the pain of waiting for a promise that can become a really profound spiritual sticking point for God's people. This to me is eye-opening, and I think it's one of the scariest things about the Bible, is that even though God did keep his promise, how we respond to his promise can determine whether or not we inherit it. That slavery in Egypt became the time when Israel lost sight of the promise so that they weren't ready to respond to it when it was time to be fulfilled. And even when they did come out, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive a great gift from God, the law for the people. And he takes too long on the mountain, and the next thing that happens is the episode with the golden calf. This tells me that when, when Hebrews focuses in on Abraham's patience as being the thing that sets him apart as someone who actually inherits the promises of God, the author of Hebrews is onto something, a promise. 
Abraham's patient and Israel wasn't. Now, right now, the church is not enslaved in Egypt. But God makes it very clear that receiving the promise of the kingdom means that the church throughout the ages has to endure persecution. The church has to suffer if it wants to see his promises fulfilled. And God is totally clear that things are gonna get so bad, the persecution will be so intense that the people's love is gonna grow cold, they're gonna abandon the faith. And we can see that pattern repeating from the ancient church until the present day. It happens again and again and again and again. It happens with Judas, it happens in the fourth century. It happens you know, under totalitarian regimes in the 20th and 21st century. Persecution can crush our love and our hope in God. I, I do wanna say one thing just to be absolutely clear here. Our situation right now in the West, in America, is nothing like the experience of the church under like Nero's oppression in Rome, when Nero was literally killing Christians, dipping them in pitch, and using them as torches in his garden parties. Like Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The church in America is not at the point of resisting to the point of shedding blood. But we do need to meditate on the testimony and the witness of the martyrs because they reveal something profoundly true about the relationship between Christ and his kingdom and the kingdom of the world. This is why Matthew 24 says that the world will mourn when Jesus returns. The world will mourn when Christ returns because when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, it means that the kingdom of the world is no more. It means overthrow. It means that the world falls in the same way that the land of promise fell to Abraham's descendants. And all of those nations that were there once upon a time get driven out before the inbreaking kingdom of God. And the world and the spiritual powers that energize the world today know it. They know that their time is short. They know that the coming of the kingdom means the end of theirs. And so they will persecute the people to whom God has promised the kingdom. So if we don't want to mourn when Jesus comes with the world, that means that we're going to have to mourn right now. There's a reason why in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the book, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. This is the mourning that comes with looking around at our circumstances in the world and saying, this is not my home. I choose to wait for a better kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And then we have to live in a way that will put us fundamentally at odds with the kingdom of the world. And that's why patience is critical. Because living out of joint with the times and the seasons and the peoples and the places and the political systems and the educational systems that are surrounding us, like the water that we swim in every day is really painful, even if we're not being put to death like the martyrs. This is why patience is essential, non-negotiable if we want to inherit the promises of God. So remember Hebrews 6. Abraham's patience helps him endure until the time when his promise is fulfilled at age 99. So I want to say just a few things then about Christian patience. This is a truth of the Christian life that you can take to the bank. 
Whenever God commands his people to do something, you and I and all of us together, if he gives us a command or a promise, he always gives us the power to accomplish what he commands. He doesn't leave us up to our own devices to live up to his standard. God grants what he commands. Think again about Abraham and Sarah. Their bodies are dead. They cannot reproduce by any natural means. And yet, by divine power, Isaac is born. It's the same with the church. When it comes to, when it comes to even the command to like go and evangelize the nations, like this is, this is the work, make disciples of all nations, that defines the church. I don't care how smart you are, you will never argue anyone into the kingdom of heaven based on human reason. I don't care how eloquent you are. I don't care how good your life looks. Paul explains in a passage like 2 Corinthians 2 that when he proclaims the gospel, the gospel, the power of God goes to work and it sorts people. There are the people who respond to the gospel when God goes to work in their hearts and there are some people who react to it like they're smelling the stench of a dead body. It had nothing to do, Paul thought, with his own eloquence or his own power as a speaker. It had everything to do with the power of God. So that truth is fundamental to the way that we respond to all Christian truth. If God gives us a promise, if he gives us a command, we cannot, we dare not rely on ourselves to try and bring it to pass. This is why things go so bad in Galatia. People want to... You know, people want to join themselves to the old covenant in a way that they're still like observing, uh, observing portions of the law that Paul says they don't need to. And his, his point isn't just that they don't need to be circumcised. The problem for Paul is that they're trying to perfect in the flesh what God did in the spirit. And that it's the spirit of God and the power of the spirit of God that makes the church what it is and makes Christians who they are. God grants what he commands, so we have to rely on the power of God to inherit his promises. And Christian patience that lets us endure suffering isn't like normal human patience. Because sure, every human being from a baby on up has some capacity for human patience. Even if it's minuscule and growing, I mean, that, that's a common grace. That's, that's a remnant of the image of God in us, that we can learn that we need to sometimes deal with a bit of discomfort because something better is coming. But Christian patience that lets us endure suffering and persecution and separation from the world until the time when we receive Christ at his coming isn't like that. Christian, parent, uh, Christian patience, rather, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Your and my capacity to endure when things get hard is a good thing about us. And as we grow as human beings, our capacity for patience may increase. But our human capacity for patience will never be enough to keep our spiritual legs pumping until Christ returns. The church has always had to endure suffering that would break anybody else. This is why the martyrs persevere in Rome or in Stalin's gulag and in North Korea. They endure by the power of the Spirit. Our strength isn't enough, but the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit manifest in us, which is us and yet is more than us, is the only capacity 
that will carry us to the return of Christ. So if we want to inherit a divine promise, if we want to be like Abraham and imitate his faith, we also need to exemplify his patience because the promises we've been given, they're great, they're mysterious, and notice, every Christian before us is still waiting, but they endured until the end. Does that mean that God won't keep his promise? No, it just means that it's unfulfilled. And right now, Advent is the season where we have to remember that our promise is unfulfilled, just like Abraham's promise was unfulfilled between the age that he left Haran and the age of 99. So how do we go about doing it? How do we go about seeking the Spirit, seeing the Spirit's power at work in us, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, Uh, If you're here right now today, congratulations. You're already doing one of the things that you need to do. You're continuing to meet together as the body of Christ. If you looked at Ephesians 5.18, I'm just gonna read uh, 5.18 and 19. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So notice the close connection in Ephesians 5 between being filled with the Spirit and gathering for worship. We're not just speaking psalms to ourselves quietly, we're encouraging one another, and there's something about coming together as the body of Christ that that naturally attracts the manifest presence of God in the midst of us, the presence of the Spirit. So one way to be filled with the Spirit and endure with spiritual patience is to not forsake meeting together. This is the pattern throughout the Bible. When you look at Acts consistently, in Acts it's when they're all gathered together in one place that the Spirit of God falls. So here's a second practical way to go about bearing the fruit of the Spirit, especially patience. Ask for it. Ask for it. In Luke 11, Jesus is giving some instruction on prayer to the disciples. And he starts by reminding us of a basic truth. It's one we don't like to hear, but it's that actually we're not that great left to ourselves. We're evil. And Jesus isn't just trying to like put us down so that we'll walk around like Charlie Brown kicking our shoes. He's reminding us that we're evil because what he notices is that even evil, wicked people still love their kids enough to do good things for their kids, to put them in, to tuck them in at bed at night, to make them dinner, to make sure that they're educated and clothed. Even evil people will continue to care for their kids. But God's good. God's not like us. And Jesus emphasizes that because he says, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, God will give it to you. Because if a wicked person would make sure that his kids had enough to eat, then your heavenly Father will absolutely make sure that you have the Holy Spirit when you ask. We need the Holy Spirit even more than we need physical food. But the context of that promise is also a little, bit, a little bit tough because sandwiched in the middle there is this little parable where Jesus compares prayer to being like somebody who has need for food, running through a town in the middle of the night, all the stores are closed, all the doors are locked, 
and going to the house of someone who you know has what you need, but it's the middle of the night and they're asleep and you're pounding on the door in the middle of the night. Pounding, 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 because you need it. You need that food, it's in there, and you're saying, open up, help me, help me, help me, and the voice comes back and says, no, I'm in bed, my kids are asleep, come back in the morning. But the person who perseveres, the person who patiently perseveres, I'd say, keeps knocking, 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 until the door opens, they get what they need, and they go back to their house. That's the experience of Christian prayer for the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit? Knock, and don't stop knocking because you're confident that even though it feels like you're pounding on a locked door in the middle of the night that nobody is ever gonna open, God is inside, and the God who's inside is good, is better than you, and in the same way that you would wanna do good to the people around you, even though you're wicked, God wants that much more to give you the Holy Spirit. So if you need patience to endure until his coming, and patience is a fruit of the Spirit, then knock and ask for the Holy Spirit because the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, produces love, joy, peace, patience. So welcome to Advent, the time when we remember the unfulfilled promises and what it takes to live in them. We're gonna look backwards over the next three more weeks to the way that God has been faithful in the past and to the way that his people haven't always been faithful in the past so that when we look forward to our own promises that we must inherit, we will live as people of patient hope, faith, love, that carries us until the return of Christ. I think think because it's Advent, you know, I go back to those early chapters of the Gospels, the Christmas stories, but especially like the Gospel of Luke leading up to the Christmas story, and I think about the promise to Mary when Gabriel comes. Gabriel comes and promises her a son, and he's gonna be Messiah, he's gonna be Emmanuel. And implicit in that promise is that this is going to hurt. You're gonna be looked at as an unwed mother. You're gonna have to flee your home down to Egypt. Look ahead, another chapter, the prophetess comes to Mary and says that even once Jesus is born, you know what it's gonna mean? It's gonna mean that a sword is gonna pierce your own own soul. And that on the way to receiving the promises of God, Mary says, behold the servant of the Lord, may it be to me according to your will, and then she endures. Thank God for all of us that Mary endured. A few weeks ago, Nick taught on Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a very tough text, the text about the adulterous wife. And what goes wrong with the adulterous wife? She forgets who made her, who she is, who picked her up when she was lost and abandoned in the field and who raised her up and married her and made her rich and prosperous. She forgets and she trusts instead in her own beauty and strength. Advent is a season to remember what God has done for his people in the past so that we don't trust in the wrong thing. And this is the great news for all of us. He's promised us the kingdom of heaven and he has faithfully promised the kingdom of heaven. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Israel. He was faithful to Mary. 
and he will be faithful to Jesus, who he has promised the kingdom, but hasn't received it yet. And because he's faithful to Jesus, he will be faithful to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness to us and to all whom you have made. Thank you that you make the sun to rise and set on the righteous, on the unrighteous. Thank you that you send the rain and the snow when we need it. Thank you for meeting all our needs. But Lord, we do take a moment now to say that we have needs that haven't been met yet. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when we will be redeemed and united with Christ and with the whole body of Christ. And Lord, we refuse to set our hope on anything less. So now, make us a people of your spirit. When we gather together and worship and we sing, make us a people of your spirit who will bear fruit of the spirit and will patiently endure. Pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.